Welcome back to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Jane Eyre. Without further ado, here is Marilyn Lightstone to continue the story. Chapter 29 The recollection of about three days and nights succeeding this is very dim in my mind. I can recall some sensations felt in that interval, but few thoughts framed and no actions performed. I knew I was in a small room and in a narrow bed. To that bed I seemed to have grown. I lay on it motionless as a stone, and to have torn me from it would have been almost to kill me. I took no note of the lapse of time, of the change from morning to noon, from noon to evening. I observed when anyone entered or left the apartment. I could even tell who they were. I could understand what was said when the speaker stood near to me, but I could not answer. To open my lips or move my limbs was equally impossible. Hannah, the servant, was my most frequent visitor. Her coming disturbed me. I had a feeling that she wished me away, that she did not understand me or my circumstances, that she was prejudiced against me. Diana and Mary appeared in the chamber once or twice a day. They would whisper sentences of this sort at my bedside. It is very well we took her in. Yes, she would certainly have been found dead at the door in the morning had she been left out all night. I wonder what she has gone through. Strange hardships, I imagine. Poor, emaciated, pallid wanderer. She is not an uneducated person, I should think, by her manner of speaking. Her accent was quite pure, and the clothes she took off, though, though splashed and wet, were little worn and fine. She has a peculiar face. Fleshless and haggard as it is, I, I rather like it. And when in good health and animated, I could fancy her physiognomy would be agreeable. Never once in their dialogues did I hear a syllable of regret at the hospitality they had extended to me, or of suspicion of or aversion to myself. I was comforted. Mr. Sinchin came but once. He looked at me and said my state of lethargy was the result of reaction from excessive and protracted fatigue. He pronounced it needless to send for a doctor. Nature, he was sure, would manage best, left to herself. He said every nerve had been overstrained in some way, and the whole system must sleep torpid a while. There was no disease. He imagined my recovery would be rapid enough when once commenced. These opinions he delivered in a few words, in a quiet, low voice, and added after a pause, in the tone of a man little accustomed to expansive comment. Rather an unusual physiognomy, certainly, not indicative of vulgarity or degradation. Far otherwise, responded Diana. To speak truth, Sinjin, my heart rather warms to the poor little soul. I wish we may be able to benefit her permanently. That is hardly likely, was the reply. You will find she is some young lady who has had a misunderstanding with her friends and, and has probably injudiciously left them. We may perhaps succeed in restoring her to them, if she is not obstinate. But I trace lines of force in her face which make me skeptical of her tractability. He stood, considering me some minutes, then added, She looks sensible, but not at all handsome. 
She is so ill, Sinjin. Ill or well, she would always be plain. The grace and harmony of beauty are quite wanting in those features. On the third day, I was better. On the fourth, I could speak, move, rise in bed, and turn. Hannah had brought me some gruel and dry toast, about, as I supposed, the dinner hour. I had eaten with relish. The food was good, void of the feverish flavor which had hitherto poisoned what I had swallowed. When she left me, I felt comparatively strong and revived. Ere long, fatigue with repose and desire for action stirred me. I wished to rise, but what could I put on? Only my damp and bemired apparel in which I had slept on the ground and fallen in the marsh. I felt ashamed to appear before my benefactor so glad. I was spared the humiliation. On a chair by the bedside were all my own things, clean and dry. My black silk frock hung against the wall. The traces of the bog were removed from it. The creases left by the wet smoothed out. It was quite decent. My very shoes and stockings were purified and rendered presentable. There were the means of washing in the room, and a comb and brush to smooth my hair. After a weary process and resting every five minutes, I succeeded in dressing myself. My clothes hung loose on me, for I was much wasted, but I covered deficiencies with a shawl, and once more, clean and respectable-looking, no speck of the dirt, no trace of the disorder I so hated and which seemed so to degrade me, left. I crept down a stone staircase with the aid of the banisters to a narrow, low passage and found my way presently to the kitchen. It was full of the fragrance of new bread and the warmth of a generous fire. Hannah was baking. Prejudices, it is well known, are most difficult to eradicate from the heart whose soil has never been loosened or fertilized by education. They grow there, firm as weeds among stones. Hannah had been cold and stiff indeed at the first. Latterly, she had begun to relent a little, and when she saw me come in, tidy and well-dressed, she even smiled. Oh, what? You have got up! she said. You are better, then. You may sit you down in my chair on the hearthstone, if you will. She pointed to the rocking chair. I took it. She bustled about, examining me every now and then with the corner of her eye. Turning to me as she took some loaves from the oven, she asked bluntly, Did you ever go a-begging afore you came here? I was indignant for a moment, but remembering that anger was out of the question, and that I had indeed appeared as a beggar to her, I answered quietly, but still not without a certain marked firmness. You are mistaken in supposing me a beggar. I am no beggar, any more than yourself or your young ladies. After a pause, she said, I do not understand that. You've like no house or nor no brass, I guess. The want of house or brass, by which I suppose you mean money, does not make a beggar in your sense of the word. Are you book-learned? She inquired presently. Yes, very, 
But you've never been to a boarding school? I was at a boarding school eight years. She opened her eyes wide. Whatever cannot you keep yourself for, then? I have kept myself, and I trust shall keep myself again. What are you going to do with those gooseberries? I inquired as she brought out a basket of the fruit. Make them into pies. Well, give them to me and I'll pick them. Oh, nay, I don't want you to do not. But I must do something. Let me have them. She consented, and she even brought me a clean towel to spread over my dress. Lest, she said, I should mucky it. You've not been used to servants' work, I see by your hands, she remarked. Happen you've been a dressmaker? No, you are wrong. And now, never mind what I have been. Don't trouble your head further about me, but tell me the name of the house where we are. Some calls it Marsh End, and some calls it Moor House. And the gentleman who lives here is called Mr. St. John? Nay, he doesn't live here. He is only staying a while. When he is at home, he is in his own parish at Morton. The village a few miles off? Aye. And what is he? He is a parson. I remembered the answer of the old housekeeper at the parsonage when I had asked to see the clergyman. This, then, was his father's residence? Aye. Old Mr. Rivers lived here, and his father, and grandfather, and great-grandfather afore him. The name, then, of that gentleman is Mr. St. John Rivers? Aye. St. John is like his cursing name. And his sisters are called Diana and Mary Rivers? Yes. Their father is dead? Dead three weeks since of a stroke. They have no mother? The mistress has been dead this many a year. Have you lived with the family long? I've lived here thirty year. I nursed them all three. That proves you must have been an honest and faithful servant. I will say so much for you though you have had the incivility to call me a beggar. She again regarded me with a surprised stare. I believe, she said, I was quite mistaken in my thoughts of you, but there are so many cheats goes about, you might forgive me. And although, I continued rather severely, you wish to turn me from the door on a night when you should not have shut out a dog. Well, it was hard, but what can a body do? I thought more of the children, nor, nor of myself. Poor things. They've like nobody to take care of them but me. I'm like to look sharpish. I maintained a grave silence for some minutes. You mun't think too hardly of me, she again remarked. But I do think hardly of you, I said, and I'll tell you why. Not so much because you refused to give me shelter— or regarded me as an impostor, as because you just now made it a species of reproach that I had no brass and no house. Some of the best people that ever lived have been as destitute as I am. And if you are a Christian, you ought not to consider poverty a crime. No more I ought, said she. Mr. St. John tells me so, too, and I see I were wrong. And, and I have clear... Different notion on you now to what I had. You look a right down, decent little crater. That will do. I forgive you now. Shake hands. She put her flowery on a horny hand into mine. 
another and heartier smile illumined her rough face, and from that moment we were friends. Hannah was evidently fond of talking. While I picked the fruit and she made the pace for the pies, she proceeded to give me sundry details about her deceased master and mistress, and the the, the childer, as she called the young people. Old Mr. River, she said, was a plain man enough, but a gentleman, and of as ancient a family as could be found. Marsh End had belonged to the rivers ever since it was a house, and it was, she affirmed, Oh, boom, two hundred year old, for all it looked but a small, humble place, not to compare with Mr. Oliver's grand hall down in Water Vale. But she could remember Bill Oliver's father, a journeyman needlemaker, and the rivers were gentry in the old days of the Henrys, as anybody might see by looking into the register in Morton Church Vestry. Still, she allowed, the old master was like other folk, not much out of the common way. "'stark mad a-shootin' and farmin' and such like. "'The mistress was different. "'She was a great reader and studied a deal, "'and the bairns had taken after her. "'There was nothing like them in these parts, nor ever had been. "'They had all liked learnin', all three, "'almost from the time they could speak, "'and they had always been of a mech of their own. Mr. St. John, when he grew up, would go to college and be a parson, and the girls, as soon as they left school, would seek places as governesses, for they had told her their father had some years ago lost a great deal of money by a man he had trusted turning bankrupt, and as he was now not rich enough to give them fortunes, they must provide for themselves. They'd lived very little at home for a long while, and were only come now to stay a few weeks on account of their father's death. But they did so like Marsh End and Morton and all these moors and hills about. They'd been in London and many other grand towns, but they always said there was no place like home. And then they were so agreeable with each other, never fell out nor threeped. She did not know where there was such a family for being united. Having finished my task of gooseberry picking, I asked her where the two ladies and their brother were now. Gone over to Morton for a walk, but they'd be back in half an hour to tea. They returned within the time Hannah had allotted them. They entered by the kitchen door. Mr. St. John, when he saw me, merely bowed and passed through. The two ladies stopped. Mary in a few words, kindly and calmly expressed the pleasure she felt in seeing me well enough to be able to come down. Diana took my hand. She shook her head at me. You should have waited for my leave to descend, she said. You still look very pale and so thin. Poor child, poor girl. Diana had a voice toned to my ear, like the cooing of a dove. She possessed eyes whose gaze I delighted to encounter. Her whole face seemed to me full of charm. Mary's countenance was equally intelligent, her features equally pretty, but her expression was more reserved, and her manners, though gentle, more distant. Diana looked and spoke with a certain authority. She had a will, evidently. It was my nature to feel pleasure in yielding to an authority supported like hers, and to bend where my conscience and self-respect permitted to an active will. 
And what business have you here? She continued. It is not your place. Mary and I sit in the kitchen sometimes, because at home we like to be free, even to license. But you are a visitor and must go into the parlor. I am very well here. Not at all, with Hannah bustling about and covering you with flour. Besides, the fire is too hot for you, interposed Mary. To be sure, added her sister. Come, you must be obedient. And still holding my hand, she made me rise and led me into the inner room. Sit there, she said, placing me on the sofa, while we take our things off and get the tea ready. It is another privilege we exercise in our little moorland home, to prepare our own meals when we are so inclined, or when Hannah is baking, brewing, washing, or ironing. She closed the door, leaving me solace with Mr. St. John, who sat opposite, a book or newspaper in his hand. I examined first the parlor and then its occupant. The parlor was rather a small room, very plainly furnished, yet comfortable because clean and neat. The old-fashioned chairs were very bright, and the walnut wood table was like a looking-glass. A few strange antique portraits of the men and women of other days decorated the stained walls. A cupboard with glass doors contained some books and an ancient set of china. There was no superfluous ornament in the room. Not one modern piece of furniture save a brace of workboxes and a lady's desk in rosewood which stood on a side table. Everything, including the carpet and curtains, looked at once well-worn and well-saved. Mr. St. John, sitting as still as one of the dusty pictures on the wall, keeping his eyes fixed on the page he perused and his lips mutely sealed, was easy enough to examine. Had he been a statue instead of a man, he could not have been easier. He was young, perhaps from twenty-eight to thirty, tall, slender. His face riveted the eye. It was like a Greek face, very pure in outline, quite a straight classic nose, quite an Athenian mouth and chin. It is seldom indeed an English face comes so near the antique models as did his. He might well be a little shocked at the irregularity of my lineaments, his own being so harmonious. His eyes were large and blue, with brown lashes. His high forehead, colorless as ivory, was partially streaked over by careless locks of fair hair. This is a gentle delineation, is it not, reader? Yet he whom it describes scarcely impressed one with the idea of a gentle, a yielding, an impressible, or even of a placid nature. Quiescent as he now sat, there was something about his nostril, his mouth, his brow, which, to my perceptions, indicated elements within either restless or hard or eager. He did not speak to me one word nor even direct to me one glance, till his sisters returned. Diana, as she passed in and out in the course of preparing tea, brought me a little cake baked on the top of the oven. "'Eat that now,' she said. "'You must be hungry. Hannah says you have had nothing but some gruel since breakfast.' I did not refuse it, for my appetite was awakened and keen. 
Mr. Rivers now closed his book, approached the table, and as he took a seat, fixed his blue, pictorial-looking eyes full on me. There was an unceremonious directness, a searching, decided steadfastness in his gaze now, which told that intention, and not diffidence, had hitherto kept it averted from the stranger. "'You are very hungry?' he said. "'I am, sir. It is my way. It always was my way, by instinct, ever to meet the brief with brevity, the direct with plainness.' It is well for you that a low fever has forced you to abstain for the last three days. There would have been danger in yielding to the cravings of your appetite at first. Now you may eat, though still not immoderately. I trust I shall not eat long at your expense, sir, was my very clumsily contrived, unpolished answer. No, he said coolly. When you have indicated to us the residence of your friends, we can write to them, and you may be restored to home. That, I must plainly tell you, is out of my power to do, being absolutely without home and friends. The three looked at me, but not distrustfully. I felt there was no suspicion in their glances. There was more of curiosity. I speak particularly of the young ladies. St. John's eyes, though clear enough in a literal sense, in a figurative one were difficult to fathom. He seemed to use them rather as instruments to search other people's thoughts than as agents to reveal his own, the which combination of keenness and reserve was considerably more calculated to embarrass than to encourage. "'Do you mean to say,' he asked, "'that you are completely isolated from every connection?' "'I do. Not a tie links me to any living thing.' Not a claim do I possess to admittance under any roof in England. A most singular position at your age. Here I saw his glance directed to my hands, which were folded on the table before me. I wondered what he sought there. His words soon explained the quest. You have never been married? You are a spinster? Diana laughed. Why, she can't be above seventeen or eighteen years old, St. John, said she. I am near nineteen, but I am not married. No. I felt a burning glow mount to my face, for bitter and agitating recollections were awakened by the allusion to marriage. They all saw the embarrassment and the emotion. Diana and Mary relieved me by turning their eyes elsewhere than to my crimson visage, but the colder and sterner brother continued to gaze, till the trouble he had excited forced out tears as well as color. "'Where did you last reside?' he now asked. "'You are too inquisitive, St. John,' murmured Mary in a low voice. But he leaned over the table and required an answer by a second firm and piercing look. "'The name of the place where, and of the person with whom I lived,' "'Is my secret,' I replied concisely. "'Which, if you like, you have, in my opinion, a right to keep, "'both from St. John and every other questioner,' remarked Diana. "'Yet if I know nothing about you or your history, I cannot help you,' he said. "'And you need help, do you not?' "'I need it, and I seek it so far, sir,' that some true philanthropist will put me in the way of getting work which I can do, and the remuneration for which will keep me, if but in the barest necessaries of life. 
I know not whether I am a true philanthropist, yet I am willing to aid you to the utmost of my power in a purpose so honest. First, then, tell me what you have been accustomed to do and what you can do. I had now swallowed my tea. I was mightily refreshed by the beverage, as much so as a giant with wine. It gave new tone to my unstrung nerves and enabled me to address this penetrating young judge steadily. Mr. Rivers, I said, turning to him and looking at him as he looked at me, openly and without diffidence, you and your sisters have done me a great service. The greatest man can do his fellow being. You have rescued me by your noble hospitality from death. This benefit conferred gives you an unlimited claim on my gratitude, and a claim, to a certain extent, on my confidence. I will tell you as much of the history of the wanderer you have harbored as I can tell without compromising my own peace of mind, my own security, moral and physical, and that of others. I am an orphan, the daughter of a clergyman. My parents died before I could know them. I was brought up a dependent, educated in a charitable institution. I will even tell you the name of the establishment where I passed six years as a pupil and two as a teacher, Lowood Orphan Asylum. You will have heard of it, Mr. Rivers? The Reverend Robert Brocklehurst is the treasurer. I have heard of Mr. Brocklehurst, and I have seen the school. I left Lowood nearly a year since to become a private governess. I obtained a good situation and was happy. This place I was obliged to leave four days before I came here. The reason of my departure I cannot and ought not to explain. It, it would be useless, dangerous, and would, <laughs> and would sound incredible. No blame attached to me. I am as free from culpability as any one of you three. Miserable I am, and must be for a time, for the catastrophe which drove me from a house I had found a paradise was of a strange and direful nature. I observed but two points in planning my departure. Speed, secrecy. To secure these, I had to leave behind me everything I possessed, except a small parcel, which in my hurry and trouble of mind I forgot to take out of the coach that brought me to Whitcross. To this neighborhood, then, I came, quite destitute. I slept two nights in the open air and wandered about two days without crossing a threshold, but twice in that space of time did I taste food, and it was when brought by hunger, exhaustion, and despair, almost to the last gasp, that you, Mr. Rivers, forbade me to perish of want at your door and took me under the shelter of your roof. I know all your sisters have done for me since, for I have not been insensible during my seeming torpor, and I owe to their spontaneous, genuine, genial compassion as large a debt as to your evangelical charity. Don't make her talk any more now, St. John, said Diana, as I paused. She is evidently not yet fit for excitement. Come to the sofa and sit down now, Miss Elliot. I gave an involuntary start at hearing the alias. I had forgotten my new name. Mr. Rivers, whom nothing seemed to escape, noticed it at once. You said your name was Jane Elliot? He observed. 
I did say so, and it is the name by which I think it expedient to be called at present. But it is not my real name, and when I hear it, it sounds strange to me. Your real name you will not give? No. No, I fear discovery above all things, and whatever disclosure would lead to it, I avoid. You are quite right, I am sure, said Diana. Now, do, brother, let her be at peace a while. But when Sinchin had mused a few moments, he recommenced as imperturbably and with as much acumen as ever. You would not like to be long dependent on our hospitality. You would wish, I see, to dispense as soon as may be with my sister's compassion, and, above all, with my charity. I'm quite sensible of the distinction drawn, nor do I resent it. It is just. You desire to be independent of us. I do. I have already said so. Show me how to work or how to seek work. That is all I now ask. Then let me go if it but be to the meanest cottage. But till then, allow me to stay here. I dread another essay of the horrors of homeless destitution. Indeed, you shall stay here, said Diana, putting her white hand on my head. You shall, repeated Mary, in the tone of undemonstrative sincerity which seemed natural to her. My sisters, you see, have a pleasure in keeping you, said Mr. St. John as they would have a pleasure in keeping and cherishing a half-frozen bird. Some wintry wind might have driven through their casement. I feel more inclination to put you in the way of keeping yourself, and shall endeavor to do so. But observe, my sphere is narrow. I am but the incumbent of a poor country parish. My aid must be of the humblest sort, and if you are inclined to despise the day of small things, seek some more efficient succor than such as I can offer." She has already said that she is willing to do anything honest she can do, answered Diana for me. And you know, St. John, she has no choice of helpers. She is forced to put up with such crusty people as you. I will be dressmaker. I will be a plain workman. I will be a servant, a nurse girl, if I can be no better, I answered. Right, said Mr. St. John, quite coolly. If such is your spirit, I promise to aid you in my own time and way. He now resumed the book with which he had been occupied before tea. I soon withdrew, for I had talked as much and sat up as long as my present strength would permit. Chapter 30 The more I knew of the inmates of Morehouse, the better I liked them. In a few days I had so far recovered my health that I could sit up all day and walk out sometimes. I could join with Diana and Mary in all their occupations, converse with them as much as they wished, and aid them when and where they would allow me. There was a reviving pleasure in this intercourse, of a kind now tasted by me for the first time, the pleasure arising from perfect congeniality of tastes, sentiments, and principles. I liked to read what they liked to read. What they enjoyed delighted me. What they approved, I reverenced. They loved their sequestered home. I, too, in the gray, small, antique structure with its low roof, its latticed casements, its moldering walls, its avenue of aged firs, all grown aslant under the stress of mountain winds, its garden, dark with yew and holly, 
and where no flowers but of the hardiest species would bloom, found a charm both potent and permanent. They clung to the purple moors behind and around their dwelling, to the hollow vale into which the pebbly bridle path leading from their gate descended, and which wound between fern banks first, and then amongst a few of the wildest little pasture fields that ever bordered a wilderness of heath, or gave sustenance to a flock of grey moorland sheep with their little mossy-faced lambs. They clung to this scene, I say, with a perfect enthusiasm of attachment. I could comprehend the feeling, and share both its strength and truth. I saw the fascination of the locality. I felt the consecration of its loneliness. My eye feasted on the outline of swell and sweep, on the wild coloring communicated to ridge and dell by moss, by heathbell, by flower-sprinkled turf, by brilliant bracken and mellow granite crag. These details were just to me what they were to them. So many pure and sweet sources of pleasure. The strong blast and the soft breeze. The rough and the halcyon day. The hours of sunrise and sunset. The moonlight and the clouded night developed for me in these regions the same attraction as for them. Wound round my faculties the same spell that entranced theirs. Indoors, we agreed equally well. They were both more accomplished and better read than I was, but with eagerness I followed in the path of knowledge they had trodden before me. I devoured the books they lent me. Then it was full satisfaction to discuss with them in the evening what I had perused during the day. Thought fitted thought. Opinion met opinion. We coincided, in short, perfectly. If in our trio there was a superior and a leader, it was Diana. Physically, she far excelled me. She was handsome. She was vigorous. In her animal spirits there was an affluence of life and certainty of flow, such as excited my wonder, while it baffled my comprehension. I could talk a while when the evening commenced, but the first gush of vivacity and fluency gone— I was fain to sit on a stool at Diana's feet, to rest my head on her knee, and listen alternately to her and Mary, while they sounded thoroughly the topic on which I had but touched. Diana offered to teach me German. I liked to learn of her. I saw the part of instructress pleased and suited her. That of scholar pleased and suited me no less. Our natures dovetailed. Mutual affection of the strongest kind was the result. They discovered I could draw. Their pencils and color boxes were immediately at my service. My skill, greater in this one point than theirs, surprised and charmed them. Mary would sit and watch me by the hour together, then she would take lessons. And a docile, intelligent, assiduous pupil she made. Thus occupied, and mutually entertained, days passed like hours, and weeks like days. As to Mr. St. John, the intimacy which had arisen so naturally and rapidly between me and his sisters did not extend to him. 
one reason of the distance yet observed between us was that he was comparatively seldom at home. A large proportion of his time appeared devoted to visiting the sick and poor among the scattered population of his parish. No weather seemed to hinder him in these pastoral excursions. Rain or fair, he would, when his hours of morning study were over, take his hat, and followed by his father's old pointer, Carlo, go out on his mission of love or duty. I scarcely know in which light he regarded it. Sometimes, when the day was very unfavorable, his sisters would expostulate. He would then say, with a peculiar smile, more solemn than cheerful, And if I let a gust of wind or a sprinkling of rain turn me aside from these easy tasks, what preparation would such sloth be for the future I propose to myself? Diana and Mary's general answer to this question was a sigh, and some minutes of apparently mournful meditation. But, besides his frequent absences, there was another barrier to friendship with him. He seemed of a reserved and abstracted and even of a brooding nature. Zealous in his ministerial labors, blameless in his life and habits, he yet did not appear to enjoy that mental serenity, that inward content which should be the reward of every sincere Christian and practical philanthropist. Often of an evening when he sat at the window, his desk and papers before him, he would cease reading or writing, rest his chin on his hand, and deliver himself up to, I know not what course of thought, but that it was perturbed and exciting might be seen in the frequent flash and changeful dilation of his eye. I think, moreover, that nature was not to him that treasury of delight it was to his sisters. He expressed once, and but once in my hearing, a strong sense of the rugged charm of the hills, and an inborn affection for the dark roof and hoary walls he called his home. But there was more of gloom than pleasure in the tone and words in which the sentiment was manifested, and never did he seem to roam the moors for the sake of their soothing silence, never seek out or dwell upon the thousand peaceful delights they could yield. Incommunicative as he was, Some time elapsed before I had an opportunity of gauging his mind. I first got an idea of its caliber when I heard him preach in his own church at Morton. I wish I could describe that sermon, but it is past my power. I cannot even render faithfully the effect it produced on me. It began calm, and indeed, as far as delivery and pitch of voice went, it was calm to the end, and earnestly felt, yet strictly restrained zeal breathed soon in the distinct accents and prompted the nervous language. This grew to force, compressed, condensed, controlled. The heart was thrilled, the mind astonished by the power of the preacher. Neither were softened. Throughout there was a strange bitterness, an absence of consolatory gentleness, stern allusions to Calvinistic doctrines, election, predestination, reprobation were frequent, and each reference to these points sounded like a sentence pronounced for doom. When he had done, instead of feeling better, calmer, more enlightened by his discourse, I experienced an inexpressible sadness. For it seemed to me 
I know not whether equally so to others, that the eloquence to which I had been listening had sprung from a depth where lay turbid dregs of disappointment, where moved troubling impulses of insatiate yearnings and disquieting aspirations. I was sure St. John Rivers, pure-lived, conscientious, zealous as he was, had not yet found that peace of God which passeth all understanding. He had no more found it, I thought, than had I, with my concealed and racking regrets for my broken idol and lost Elysium, regrets to which I have latterly avoided referring, but which possessed me and tyrannized over me ruthlessly. Meantime, a month was gone. Diana and Mary were soon to leave Moorhouse and return to the far different life and scene which awaited them as governesses in a large, fashionable South of England city, where each held a situation in families by whose wealthy and haughty members they were regarded only as humble dependents, and who neither knew nor sought out their innate excellences and appreciated only their acquired accomplishments, as they appreciated the skill of their cook, or the taste of their waiting-woman. Mr. St. John had said nothing to me yet about the employment he had promised to obtain for me, yet it became urgent that I should have a vocation of some kind. One morning, left alone with him a few minutes in the parlour, I ventured to approach the window recess, which is table, chair, and desk consecrated as a kind of study, and I was going to speak, though not very well knowing in what words to frame my inquiry, for it is at all times difficult to break the ice of reserve glassing over such natures as his, when he saved me the trouble by being the first to commence a dialogue. Looking up as I drew near, "'You have a question to ask of me?' he said. "'Yes,' I wish to know whether you have heard of any service I can offer myself to undertake. I found or devised something for you three weeks ago, but as you seemed both useful and happy here, as my sisters had evidently become attached to you, and your society gave them unusual pleasure, I deemed it inexpedient to break in on your mutual comfort till their approaching departure from Marsh End should render yours necessary. And they will go in three days now, I said. "'Yes, and when they go, I shall return to the parsonage at Morton. "'Hannah will accompany me, and this old house will be shut up.' "'I waited a few moments, expecting he would go on with the subject first broached. "'But he seemed to have entered another train of reflection. "'His look denoted abstraction from me and my business. "'I was obliged to recall him to a theme which was of necessity "'one of close and anxious interest to me.' "'What is the employment you had in view, Mr. Rivers? I, "'I hope this delay will not have increased the difficulty of securing it. "'Oh, no, since it is an employment which depends only on me to give and you to accept.' "'He again paused. "'There seemed a reluctance to continue. "'I grew impatient. "'A restless movement or two and an eager and exciting glance fastened on his face.' conveyed the feelings to him as effectually as words could have done, and with less trouble. "'You need be in no hurry to hear,' he said. "'Let me frankly tell you, I have nothing eligible or profitable to suggest. Before I explain, recall, or, if you please, my notice, 
clearly given that if I helped you, it must be as the blind man would help the lame. I am poor, for I find that when I have paid my father's debts, all the patrimony remaining to me will be this crumbling grange, the row of scathed firs behind, and the patch of moorish soil with the yew trees and holly bushes in front. I am obscure. Rivers is an old name, but of the three sole descendants of the race, two earn the dependents' crusts among strangers, and the third considers himself an alien from his native country, not only for life, but in death. Yes, and deems and is bound to deem himself honored by the lot, and aspires but after the day when the cross of separation from fleshly ties shall be laid on his shoulders, and when the head of that church militant of whose humblest members he is one shall give the word, Rise, follow me. St. John said these words as he pronounced his sermons, with a quiet, deep voice, with an unflushed cheek and a coruscating radiance of glance. He resumed, And since I am myself poor and obscure, I can offer you but a service of poverty and obscurity. You may even think it degrading, for I see now your habits have been what the world calls refined. Your tastes lean to the ideal, and your society has at least been amongst the educated. But I consider that no service degrades which can better our race. I hold that the more arid and unreclaimed the soil where the Christian laborer's task of tillage is appointed him, the scantier the mead his toil brings, the higher the honor. His, under such circumstances, is the destiny of the pioneer, and the first pioneers of the gospel were the apostles. Their captain was Jesus the Redeemer himself. Well, I said, as he again paused, proceed. He looked at me before he proceeded. Indeed, he seemed leisurely to read my face, as if its features and lines were characters on a page. The conclusions drawn from this scrutiny he partially expressed in his succeeding observations. I believe you will accept the post I offer you, said he, and hold it for a while, not permanently, though, any more than I could keep permanently the narrow and narrowing, the tranquil hidden office of English country incumbent, for in your nature is an alloy as detrimental to repose as that in mine, though of a different kind. To explain, I urged, when he halted once more, I will, and you shall hear how poor the proposal is, how trivial, how cramping. I shall not stay long at Morton, now that my father is dead, and that I am my own master. I shall leave the place, probably, in the course of a twelvemonth, but while I do stay, I will exert myself to the utmost for its improvement. Morton, when I came to it two years ago, had no school— the children of the poor were excluded from every hope of progress. I established one for boys. I mean now to open a second school for girls. I have hired a building for the purpose, with a cottage of two rooms attached to it for the mistress's house. Her salary will be thirty pounds a year. Her house is already furnished, very simply, but sufficiently, by the kindness of a lady, Miss Oliver, the only daughter of the sole rich man in my parish. Mr. Oliver, the proprietor of a needle factory and iron foundry in the valley. 
The same lady pays for the education and clothing of an orphan from the workhouse, on condition that she shall aid the mistress in such menial offices connected with her own house and the school as her occupation of teaching will prevent her from having time to discharge in person. Will you be this mistress? He put the question rather hurriedly. He seemed half to expect an indignant, or at least a disdainful rejection of the offer. Not knowing all my thoughts and feelings, though guessing some, he could not tell in what light the lot would appear to me. In truth, it was humble, but then it was sheltered, and I wanted a safe asylum. It was plodding, but then, compared with that of a governess in a rich house, it was independent and the fear of servitude with strangers entered my soul like iron. It was not ignoble, not unworthy, not mentally degrading. I made my decision. I thank you for the proposal, Mr. Rivers, and I accept it with all my heart. But you comprehend me? He said. It is a village school. Your scholars will be only poor girls, cottagers' children at the best, farmers' daughters, knitting, Sewing, reading, writing, ciphering will be all you have to teach. What will you do with your accomplishments? What with the largest portion of your mind, sentiments, tastes? Save them till they are wanted. They will keep. You know what you undertake, then? I do. He now smiled, and not a bitter or a sad smile, but one well-pleased and deeply gratified. And when will you commence the exercise of your function? I will go to my house tomorrow, and open the school, if you like, next week. Very well. So be it. He rose and walked through the room. Standing still, he again looked at me. He shook his head. What do you disapprove of, Mr. Rivers? I asked. You will not stay at Morton Law. No, no. Why? What is your reason for saying so? I read it in your eye. It is not of that description which promises the maintenance of an even tenor in life. I am not ambitious. He started at the word ambitious. He repeated, No, what made you think of ambition? Who is ambitious? Well, I know I am, but how did you find it out? I was speaking of myself. Well, if you are not ambitious, you are... He paused. What? I was going to say impassioned, but perhaps you would have misunderstood the word and been displeased. I mean that human affections and sympathies have a most powerful hold on you. I'm sure you cannot long be content to pass your leisure in solitude and to devote your working hours to a monotonous labor wholly devoid of stimulus any more than I can be content, he added with emphasis. To live here, buried in morass, pent in with mountains. My nature that God gave me, contravened, my faculties, heaven bestowed, paralyzed, made useless. You hear now how I contradict myself. I, who preach contentment with a humble lot, and justified the vocation even of hewers of wood and drawers of water in God's service. I, his ordained minister, almost rave in my restlessness. Well, propensities and principles must be reconciled by some means. He left the room. In this brief hour, I had learnt more of him 
than in the whole previous month, yet still he puzzled me. Diana and Mary Rivers became more sad and silent as the day approached for leaving their brother and their home. They both tried to appear as usual, but the sorrow they had to struggle against was one that could not be entirely conquered or concealed. Diana intimated that this would be a different parting from any they had ever yet known. It would, probably, as far as St. John was concerned, be a parting for years. It might be a parting for life. He will sacrifice all his long-framed resolves, she said. Natural affection and feelings, more potent steel. St. John looks quiet, Jane, but he hides a fever in his vitals. You would think him gentle, yet in some things he is inexorable as death. And the worst of it is, my conscience will hardly permit me to dissuade him from his severe decision. Certainly, I cannot for a moment blame him for it. It is right, noble, Christian, yet it breaks my heart. And the tears gushed to her fine eyes. Mary bent her head low over her work. We are now without father. We shall soon be without home and brother, she murmured. At that moment, a little accident supervened, which seemed decreed by fate purposely to prove the truth of the adage that misfortunes never come singly, and to add to their distresses the vexing one of the slip between the cup and the lip. St. John passed the window reading a letter. He entered. Our Uncle John is dead, said he. Both the sisters seemed struck, not shocked or appalled. The tidings appeared in their eyes rather momentous than afflicting. Dead? repeated Diana. Yes. She riveted a searching gaze on her brother's face. And what then? she demanded in a low voice. What then, Di? he replied, maintaining a marble immobility of feature. What then? Why? Nothing. Read. He threw the letter into her lap. She glanced over it and handed it to Mary. Mary perused it in silence and returned it to her brother. All three looked at each other, and all three smiled. A dreary, pensive smile enough. Amen. We can yet live, said Diana at last. At any rate, it makes us no worse off than we were before, remarked Mary. Only it forces rather strongly on the mind the picture of what might have been, said Mr. Rivers, and contrasts it somewhat too vividly with what is. He folded the letter, locked it in his desk, and again went out. For some minutes, no one spoke. Diana then turned to me. Jane, you will wonder at us and our mysteries, she said and think us hard-hearted beings not to be more moved at the death of so near a relation as an uncle. But we have never seen him, nor known him. He was my mother's brother. My father and he quarreled long ago. It was by his advice that my father risked most of his property in the speculation that ruined him. Mutual recrimination passed between them. They parted in anger and were never, ever reconciled. My uncle engaged afterwards in more prosperous undertakings. It appeared he realized a fortune of twenty thousand pounds. He was never married and had no near kindred, but ourselves and one other person not more closely related than we. 
My father always cherished the idea that he would atone for his error by leaving his possessions to us. That letter informs us that he has bequeathed every penny to the other relation, with the exception of thirty guineas, to be divided between St. John, Diana, and Mary Rivers for the purchase of three mourning rings. He had a right, of course, to do as he pleased, and yet a momentary damp is cast on the spirits by the receipt of such news. Mary and I would have esteemed ourselves rich with a thousand pounds each, and to Sengen such a sum would have been valuable for the good it would have enabled him to do. This explanation given, the subject was dropped, and no further reference made to it by either Mr. Rivers or his sisters. The next day I left Marsh End for Morton. The day after, Diana and Mary quitted it for their distant employment. In a week, Mr. Rivers and Hannah repair to the parsonage, and so the old grange was abandoned. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marilyn Lightstone Reads Jane Eyre. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock and Paul Thomas. Executive producer, Moses Zneimer. You can help us by recommending this podcast to your friends and rating it in the iTunes and Android podcast stores. We invite you to enjoy a variety of other podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.